is Niall Boylan with you right to about one o'clock today. Now, we're only one week on from the Sun's first allegations about who Edwards, uh, who you know from the BBC, the newsreader, and there are still major questions and unresolved details about the six chaotic days of claim and counterclaim. And the Sun's telling of the story subtly shifted over the week, particularly on the, I suppose, the prominence given to one crucial detail which had been left out facing serious questions. And the media face an almighty balancing act between privacy and the public interest in reporting claims of serious wrongdoing. The BBC News examined more than 50 online stories, as well as print editions of The Sun and other publications as well, to look at how the media including the BBC itself, handled the most complex aspects of this particular story, if you're familiar with it. Now, the original story of The Sun started a very dangerous guessing game online with many names being mentioned and accused of wrongdoing and many careers hanging in the balance over that weekend, last weekend. Many celebrities had to go public saying, it's not me, including Jeremy Vine, who only yesterday accepted a settlement of £1,000 for charity for defamation after one person named him publicly as the accused, which he's not. Who Edwards already had suffered greatly with depression and is now in hospital after these allegations suggested he had done something illegal, which according to the police, he hasn't. The story has been replicated throughout the years where men, predominantly, have been named by newspapers or television on alleged sexual offences, only to be shown, years later, they'd done nothing wrong. Well, maybe you could say something immorally wrong, but certainly not illegal. One man I can think of, for example, was Michael Lavelle, Kevin from Coronation Street, who you may know, who's currently going through the courts with the Mirror News Group. Because, of course, they went through several stories about him, which were splashed all over the mirror, including an article about his arrest back in 2011 on suspicion of sexual offences, which he was again cleared of later on. Cliff Richard's home was raided live on BBC television. Who gave permission for that? With no case to answer. Freddie Starr is claimed to have sexually abused a minor and again was cleared, but it caused his health to decline so much that he sadly died who Edward's welfare and wife's statement made clear the impact of the day's fevered reporting and the speculation on her family. And that will be a weighty factor as the debate develops about the balancing between publishing and not publishing names versus the public interest and the right to privacy. Now, one man who has been through this, not just once in 1986, but again in 2015, when it ended his political career back in 1986 and almost ended his life in 2015 as he lost everything as part of a massive investigation by the Met Police into the testimony of one man who turned out to be a liar and a fantasist and ended up in jail. That didn't matter. As Harvey Proctor, who I'm going to speak to in a minute, was named along with two other former British politicians already who had their reputations destroyed. His job was lost. His house was taken from him. He had to leave the country, essentially, and wait for over a year for his name to be cleared. And even then, the scars are so deep that it took years to get his life back on track. And those scars will remain there probably forever. And he joins me on the line. Harvey, uh, good afternoon to you. Uh, good afternoon to you and good afternoon to your viewers and listeners. Before I come to your story, and can I just say on a personal level, uh, just in preparation for talking to people, I tend to watch a couple of interviews or documentaries or bits and pieces just for my own research, just to uh, to clarify everything that I want to talk about. And I watched those interviews with you over the years, uh, right back to 1986, 
um, there was a programme on Channel 4 called Outed. You may remember recording that one. And it was shocking. I don't know whether I was angry, I was sad, I was happy to see you cleared of everything. And when I watched those early images of you back in 1986, when you were first elected, by the way, at the same time as Maggie Thatcher, of course, was the leader of the Conservative Party, a wonderful day in British politics and probably a wonderful day in your career. And to see that smile in your face at that time change over the course of time was just shocking. So you have my personal empathy for what happened to you on two occasions that we'll get to in a few minutes. But in relation to who Edwards... Uh, and what's happening currently to him at the moment. And remember, of course, the police have said there is no crime to answer currently. How have the media handled this? Well, I think the media have handled things very badly. But on these matters, they always seem to handle things very badly. And including the BBC, who it seems to me this last week or so have been trying to outdo the Sun newspaper, a tabloid. The Sun newspaper uh, has done what it has done many times before to many people over many years. It didn't need the BBC to follow suit. I mean, who Edwards, it's known, had suffered from depression before this even happened. Um, there's no suggestion that anything illegal went on. Uh, we can talk about the morals of society and how we should and shouldn't behave morally in society. But that's kind of irrelevant to some degree when it comes to illegality, because that's what we should be focusing on is illegality. Everybody has different morals. We're not bound by particular moral codes of society. Um, and you at one stage call this a witch hunt on men who are homosexual. I'm not suggesting who Edwards is, but you call this at one point a witch hunt on men who are homosexual. Now, if I go back to 1986, and I'm sure you remember that jubilant day when you were elected in Basildon and yeah, you were at the time... Yeah, 1979 I was elected. Yeah, and then, of course, the Maggie Thatcher government in 1986, of course, this was the peak of your career. When was the first yeah. time you heard about the allegations that were being made about you? Uh, originally published in, I think, the People newspaper at the time. Was that the first you had heard of it? I think it was the People newspaper, who was then uh, a paper then owned by Robert Maxwell. Um, and Robert Maxwell disliked the fact that I'd sued the People newspaper uh, for libel. They had made allegations, wrote articles, that I had not been given the usual courtesy by the Prime Minister in Prime Minister's question time of my honourable friend. When I looked at the particular date of the Prime Minister's question time they were referring to, I discovered that Mr. Thatcher had not only referred to me as my honourable friend once, three times ending with the words my honorable friend is absolutely right mm -hmm. and therefore i'm not one for taking libel actions uh, they're very expensive and usually don't get the, the the right result but in this case i thought it was so gross so inaccurate that i sued the people and robert maxwell never forgave me for the fact that I won against his newspaper. So you essentially believe you, be, you became a target. I became a target for two reasons. 
One was that, and secondly, because he didn't like my political views, tried to get me to be disowned by my constituency for my political views, failed in that too, and therefore set his dogs of war, his journalists on to me, uh, to try to persuade my constituency executive in Billericay uh, to disown me. They refused to do so. He wired a person for sound to come into my apartment and talk to me about personal matters. The person on their own tape said he was over 21. He turned out to be 19. The age of consent for homosexuals in 1986-7 was different to what it is now and different to the heterosexual age of consent. Heterosexual age of consent in 86 was 21. Uh, sorry, was 16. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, he uh, homosexual age of consent was 21. So there was a lacuna in the law as well, uh, which uh, was rather relevant in my case. And that is that in heterosexual relations, if a man went with a girl who actually turned out to be 15, not 16, but he believed she was 16, and the jury honestly believed he was right in his mm. misunderstanding, then he had a defense. No such defense was available if a homosexual went with a chap who he thought was over 21, but turned out to be under 21. I mean, we, we, all, we all accept nowadays at 19 years of age, you're an adult. In those days, well, I suppose, morally things were different. No, yeah. The age of consent has changed in the homosexual case from 21 to 18 to 16. But at that time, 1987, I had to plead guilty to four charges of gross indecency for just not realizing that person was um, under the age of consent at that time. The offenses then are no longer offenses now. Looking back on it, even at the time, I don't think the offence was gross mm -hmm. uh, or indecent. And probably, with hindsight, I should have pleaded not guilty. The reason you pled guilty was because your mother had been through so much um, in that week, or, well, those weeks, because at one stage you felt, I'll ignore this and it'll go away. But it didn't go away. The journalists were literally no. outside your door and one journalist went into your house when your mother opened the door and searched the house looking for you. I thought my mother and my brother, both now dead, had been through an awful lot and therefore I didn't want to pro prolong an elongated court case on their behalf uh, to rub it in mm -hmm. for them. Yes, on one occasion when I I had a house in my constituency in Billericay and my mother lived there. And on one occasion, it was a Friday, I was uh, delayed at the House of Commons going back to my house in Billericay. The press obviously thought that I would have arrived at a certain time. I was late. Um, 
they knocked on the door. My mother said I wasn't in. They didn't believe her. So they pushed past her and they looked throughout the house, raided the house, looked in wardrobes, every room and under beds. Uh, of course, I wasn't there. So when I got in um, about an hour later, my mother was in a state of shock. She was quite elderly at that time in mm -hmm. her yeah. 70s. And uh, she said, just promise me one thing. And what is that? I said, um, that you haven't murdered anyone. And the reason for that was she couldn't think that the media would go to such ends to send a journalist inside the house, pushing past her inside the house onto private property to see where I was and whether I was hiding under a bed, which I that, was not. When, it, when you think back to that, I mean, that must have been so difficult for her. Um, and by the way, my condolences on, on your loss of your mum, but, but it must have been so difficult for her at that time. That must have broke your heart to see her in such a state and to see her being essentially hounded by the press as well and your family in general, your brother as well, you mentioned there a few minutes ago. It must have been very difficult for everybody in that situation. Yes, um, very painful, very hurtful. Mm -hmm. And of course... Um, worried that the public service that I enjoyed doing as a member of parliament for my constituency of Billericay at that time uh, had been undermined in my mother's eyes um, to such an extent that um, she was devastated. And when you when you look back at that now, the one thing you said that you would handle differently is you wouldn't have pleaded guilty to gross indecency, which is what the charge was at the time, which, as you said, those charges don't even exist anymore. I mean, we can all talk about morals and whether we should or shouldn't behave in a certain way, but we're talking about illegality. And you weren't guilty of any real Ill illegality by today's, certainly by today's standards. But it was to took you firstly a long time to get your life back together because you had, that was more or less the end of your political career at that particular moment in time. But that didn't stop there because I know you went on then to open a shop Well, when you tried to get your life back together, selling shirts, by the way. And again, the media were at you again because they were talking about that the shop was going to close down. Um, so they were constantly following you for 30 years, waiting for you, it seems, waiting for you to make a mistake again. Oh, I think so. Uh, in 1987, I didn't resign as Member of Parliament. I served out my full term. I just decided not to restand mm -hmm. as a candidate in the 1987 general election. The media ha had done things to me in the run-up to that. They would, uh, late at night, 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. in the morning when I got in from the House of Commons, they would come and knock on my door and say, um, Mr. Proctor, who have you been sleeping with tonight? And I would then politely tell them to go away. And at 6 o'clock the next morning, five, six hours later, they would come and knock on the door again and say, who have you been sleeping with tonight? So intolerable pressures uh, for months mm -hmm. leading up to the 1987 general election. I decided not to 
not to re-stand. With regard to the shop, in 1987, I became unemployable because of the media um, activity. I was uh, on the front page of Sunday newspapers for six weeks running. That is incredible to live your life in those circumstances. And so I'd become unemployable after the 1987 general election. And very kindly, uh, a number of my former colleagues in the house got together and um, raised some funds so I could set up a small business. And that business was a shop in Richmond upon Thames selling, um, selling shirts and ties. Mm -hmm. And that I did for um, quite a number of years, 12, 12 years. But uh, yes, the media were always trying to have a go. Um, there was one occasion in, in terms of homophobia when two people came into my shop and um, attacked me and attacked um, two friends of mine who just happened to have popped in. Uh, he happened to be a, a minister at the time. Mm -hmm. It was Neil Hamilton and his wife, Christine. And um, they also... You, you were left with a broken. You were left with a broken nose, if I remember rightly, in that particular. That's right. Now the, now the um, uh, one, I had to go to hospital that night, not with a, um, anything like a broken nose, but I, I think I broke a finger. Mm. So I went to Charing Cross Hospital, yeah. and while I was there, a photographer, who I later learned was from a tabloid newspaper came into the reception, asked where I was, fortunately couldn't recognize me or didn't recognize me. And when he was told that I wasn't there, he nonetheless went into all the cubicles in Charing Cross Hospital wow. to see if he could find me to take a photograph of me in hospital. The shop did eventually close down. Um, I think in around two thousand or so, and and John Major, yeah, John Major wore yeah, your shirts. So that, that was that was the claim to fame at the shop that John Major, of course, wore your shirts. Um, you you probably thought at that point, um, hopefully I can start to move on with my life because it took nearly thirty years for all that to heal. When was the first time that you heard about Operation Midlands, which was, of course, the allegations made made by Carl Beach, known as Nick at the time. And I'm sure that name, even when you hear that name, it sends shivers down your spine. And we'll come back to Carl Beach in a second. But the allegations that were first made, when did you first get wind of those? Was that in 2015 or did you know before that? Well, I first heard mention of Operation Midland in December 2014. Not that I knew that I was supposed to be involved with that operation or in that operation. The Metropolitan Police, through a press conference and their detective chief superintendent, Kenny MacDonald, uh, at the press conference and subsequently on numerous radio and television interviews, said the man who had the non the plume of Nick at that time to keep his anonymity, that Nick, who made all these allegations, was credible and true. Uh, no names were mentioned at that time. But then three months later, 
in March um, 2015, uh, at eight o'clock in the morning, uh, 20 Metropolitan Police officers raided my home in what it, we now know was as a result of illegal search warrants. We know that because the district judge who gave the search warrants to the police has gone public and said the police lied to him to get the search warrants. What was, what was so unbelievable, 15, sorry Harry to interrupt, what was unbelievable, and you, you mentioned the detective, because I've seen that clip on the air, where he said, we believe Nick, and we believe it's the truth. Now, nobody is suggesting, by the way, that victims or people who come forward should never be listened to. Of course they shouldn't. But, you know, of course, everybody should be listened to and supported to when they have an allegation to make because nobody would want to deter anybody from coming forward, particularly if they're crimes of a sexual nature. But the fact that he said, we believe him, and he's telling the truth, that was a huge mistake on the part of the Met Police when we eventually will find out exactly what happened um, to Carl Beach. But and yourself, Leon Britton, and the former Prime Minister, Ted Heath, uh, was accused of, um, which... Can I just clarify for people, not only were you accused of, you know, child abuse, uh, paedophilia, you were accused of murder, torture. There were all sorts of allegations being made by this individual, this fantasist. Uh, I was accused of murdering three children. In addition to the names you have mentioned, there was also the former distinguished head of the armed forces, Field Marshal Lord um, Bramall, and also the head of MI5 and the head of MI6, and a number of other um, people were roped in, including um, uh, Jenna, Lord Jenna, who was mm. a former Labour member of Parliament. So we were all castigated in one gang as having been part of a VIP paedophile ring. I should say at this stage, um, so ordinary people listening to this um, podcast do not think that I'm entirely um, focused on VIPs or, or myself for that matter. But why I'm speaking out now is because ordinary people are subjected to false accusations. There are people in prison who have been falsely accused and the jury have believed their uh, uh, the person making the allegations against them. Because from, so from all accounts, th this guy, all, all Nick... Allegations. Yeah, sorry for interrupting, but because by all accounts, this guy, Nick, and we've seen some of the video footage of his interviews, comes across as a victim, comes across as believable. But it was later found out, after he absconded from the country when they realised he was telling lies, and he, and he absconded the country to some log cabin in the middle of nowhere in Sweden to hide when they went through his own computer, that the pictures that he had drawn, pretending he had them as memories as a child when he was 12 or 13 years of age, were actually pictures he'd gotten from the internet. And also, not only that, he was the abuser. He was the paedophile. He had very unsavoury stuff on his computer. And this was all a fantasy in his own head. But yet, the British police took him and were basically taken hook, line and sinker. But for you, that was a year of your life. It certainly wasn't a speedy uh, investigation. That was more than a year of your life, whereby you were again all over the front of the newspapers. You were again vilified. You were again looked at by every member of the public as there's the guy who's involved in that. The how, after going through that originally when you were younger, 
and and taken so long to get through that and get your life back to some semblance of normality and then to have all this again in a time when social media, of course, becomes part of it as well. How did you actually get through that? How did you deal with that? We took 30 years after 1987 to really... Um, get through the first scandal. Uh, most people don't go through a scandal. I've managed to go through two. And the Metropolitan Police were themselves responsible for my name being in the public arena uh, when they said that I would not be named. Uh, 15 hours they were in my house. They left um, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, I went to bed very tired uh, forgot to turn the TV off, and at seven o'clock the next morning, I woke up to see my face from the TV screen and the news of Operation Midland and the search of my house. I turned over to Radio 4 and found that they were also um, reporting what had happened the previous day. Now I find out that one of the police officers who were in my house as part of the search team telephoned the complainant then known as Nick but he was Carl Beach to tell him that they were searching my home knowing that he had close connections with uh, an odd uh, news agency called Exaro and had close links with the BBC news team so not surprisingly it was all over the BBC and the media within hours. How did I feel about that? Um, just aghast mm. that here we go again, 30 you, years later. Did you think you'd be able to deal time, with it? Did you think you'd be able to deal with it this time? Before the police had started their investigation, the police were saying, linking back to the press conference of a few months before, that this chap was credible and true when I knew that he was incredible and untrue. Mm. And just to clarify for people, he was sentenced to 20 years in jail. Probably not enough, to be 18, honest with you. 18 well, years. Sorry, 18 years in jail, uh, which in your eyes, I'm sure, wasn't enough because he destroyed people's lives. Um, Leon Britton, of course, sadly passed away during that period of time. Um, he was unwell, but I'm pretty sure this didn't uh, help his health uh, whatsoever. Um, Ted Heath had already passed away at that stage as well, so... Um, these, I know his his own grandchildren or his grandson had spoken out of this. But you, you took the unusual step uh, in these cases because you never know, I suppose, what the right thing to do is when you're accused of something and your name is all over the press. So you took the unusual step of calling a press conference yourself to clarify to everybody, I'm not a murderer. Um, just There's just that, that clip there of you there. Just, uh, I'm just, not a murderer. I'm not a paedophile or pedra. And that was the simple message you wanted to get across, because that was an unusual thing to do, I suppose, at the time, wasn't it? Well, in 1986-87, I decided to take a strategy of not speaking to the media. My partner said very early on, it didn't get you very far, did it? So in 2015, I took a different view that I should try to put my case across. I was annoyed with the Metropolitan Police uh, that they said they wanted to interview me. And then all the 
dates for interviews were postponed. It's as though they were spinning it out. And uh, during the time, um, during this time, until they started interviewing me in June um, 2015, the media, Mr. Beach, and the police were dropping little nuggets of information about me into the media. And my solicitors were saying, oh, you can't comment. You can't comment. It will be wrong legally to comment. And so when I had to return from Spain, because you were right, I had death threats. So I left the country. I went to Spain, but came back for interviews with the police when eventually they got around to interviewing me. I told my sisters, well, okay, I will come back and be interviewed, but I will throw a press conference. They didn't want me to for legal reasons, but I overruled them and I threw a press conference, quite a long press conference, a long statement, and made myself available for questions to all the media, uh, both television, radio, and newspapers uh, to answer their questions. Once I did that, I thought the situation changed. The media had been reticent because the police were saying, if you only knew what we know, um, you, you, you would know that Mr. Proctor is guilty. Well, I was never charged, so I never went to court but I did have a hour and a half long press conference uh, setting out what I was supposed to have done. The police were not telling the media what I was supposed to have done or how mm. outrageous and inconceivable that I could be doing these things. For some example, some, of, the, some of the stories, yeah, I, I know the example you're going to give in relation to Ted Heath. Some of the examples yes. and, and the stories that were leaked... Well, well, you see, Ted Heath and I were at opposite ends of the Conservative Party, really, uh, both on the subject of um, mm. our membership of the EU and on other things such as um, immigration into the United Kingdom. So any self-respecting, intelligent police officer should have realised that the idea of Ted Heath and I doing anything together even having a cup of tea together will be um, very odd. Mm. And that um, Ted Heath would never invite me to go to his house where some of these things were supposed to have happened. And had I been invited to go to his house, I would have refused. But of course, the police wanted these things to be true. And therefore, they only looked for information and evidence that would indicate I was guilty of the things that Carl Beach had said. They didn't, for example, want to investigate or interview his ex-wife, his mother, or others. Uh, only people that they thought might uh, indicate that he was but, but the story, the story in relation to Ted Heath and you was so fantastic and so unbelievable. 
I find it difficult to believe the Met Police would have even believed the story. This outrageous story that you and Ted Heath were in this uh, hotel as part of this ring and he tried to stop you from stabbing you. It was was bonkers. It was crazy. So what you would imagine they would even try and under, like they would doubt a story like that. It was just so fantastic. But yet they seem to believe it. I, I uh, agree with your comment just then with the exception of the word seem. They mm. did believe what he was saying. They went on television and said he was credible and true before they started to investigate. Why? Because they wanted it to be true. They knew that had he been true and had it been proved, they would have made their policing uh, careers um, for the future. Endless um, conferences and speaking engagements around the world beckoned. But unfortunately for the police and for these officers, it was not true. Were any of those officers found in the investigation afterwards? And I know you took a case against, obviously, the Met Police and you in your case, obviously, and you got compensated. Not enough in my mind, by the way, can I just point out. But were any of the officers involved in that investigation who took the oath and the word of this man, this fantasist, this crazed person, did, did any of them ever face any charges themselves or investigation or disciplinary action in relation to the way they handled that? None so far, just the reverse. They were ennobled, enriched, promoted, their pensions extended. Uh, Absolutely no police officer has been held personally responsible so far. I have been um, complaining to the police and to the IOPC uh, to try to establish that one police officer should be held accountable. I'm still, I'm near, but still waiting for confirmation that at least one very, very senior police officer will face a hearing. The effect it had on your life, just finally, uh, Harvey, and, and thank you for staying with us and talking to us so much today. But the effect it had in your life uh, on those two occasions in 1986 and 2016 or 15, I mean, your friends, obviously your family stuck with you, your mum in particular, of course, on the first occasion. But your friends and your and family, your brother and people around you, did you find out very quickly who your real friends were? Oh, I think everyone knows in their personal lives when they hit difficulty, you get to know who your friends are um, and who the friends who drop away very quickly. And then some who drop away until you are, quote, cleared, unquote, and then sidle back. I'm not sure which of those categories are the worst, Mm -hmm. but... um, I have survived. I, I'm still here. You are. And I'm using my voice now to promote action against those who falsely accuse others. Vast majority of them are ordinary, dedicated people. They may not have the voice, 
um, or the platform that I've been granted. Uh, didn't want this platform, was undesired, unsought after, but now I've got it, I will use the rest of my life to make sure that ordinary people do not get falsely accused. And if they are, those false accusations are taken very seriously and dealt with by the law. I mean, you, you've had the best years of your life taken away from you by these accusations. And again, I say to you that I said at the very start, when I look at those pictures of you when you were first elected and serving under Maggie Thatcher and those that pinnacle of your political career and the smile on your face and, and that kind of look of confidence in your face. And yet, if I just do a Google image search for images of you since then, because all of those images would be taken, of course, from newspaper clips, from everything else that happened in your life, I see the sadness in your face. And it must have taken a huge personal toll on not just your mental health, but your physical health as well over these last 40 years. How are you now? Um, I'm better than I was. I won't be the same person that I was in 1979. Mm -hmm. I, if I may say so, thought it was a very great honour to be a member of Parliament, first for Basildon and for Billericay, and to meet my constituents and to try to solve their problems. I think probably I'd been less successful in solving some of my own difficulties and problems, but I've tried to stand up for myself, thinking I'm also standing up for for others. And that's what I continue to do now. I'm sorry in a way that this podcast has concentrated a lot upon what happened to me. But as an example, if your listeners and viewers think this is happening to many, many people, and the police do not take these matters as seriously as they should. Do, do you think we need to change the laws? The laws in Ireland are slightly different to the UK, but still, there's a suggestion that we should, we've had numerous cases where people have been wrongly accused, both here in Ireland and in the UK. Uh, I mentioned Michael Lavelle at the start of the show, who people would know as Kevin from Carnation Street, which was one of the classic ones, who's back in court now at the moment, actually suing the Mirror News Group uh, over the, the, the tapping of his phone and all sorts of things during that very difficult time in his life, when, of course, the jury was told to leave the court because there was no case to be had. But do, do you think that it's time the law was changed whereby people can't be named. I'm sure you remember the Cliff Richard situation where the BBC yes. was almost like a live event where the police raided his home. And the British police or the Met Police, their argument is in these cases, we need to name the person because it encourages others to come forward and collaborate the story. Is that, is that a fair argument? Yes, and I um, belong to organisations that are trying to do just this, to make sure that nobody is named, at least until they're charged with something. Um, if um, a person uh, may be accused of doing several things and the police wants um, to advertise the name to see uh, if any other complainants come forward, then let them go to a judge, a high court judge, and lay the case before a judge and see what the judge says. But in general, no one should be named before charge. I was not charged, mm -hmm. but my name was out there. So 
I think people should not be named until they are charged with an offence. And I also think it should be a criminal offence for any police officer to let the name of somebody out from an, an investigation they may be on until there are charges. It is not for the police to decide who is guilty, who is true. It is for the courts to decide. The police investigate, the CPS decide in this country who should be prosecuted, and it's for a jury and a judge to decide who is guilty or not guilty. I got to thank you very much indeed. I appreciate you talking to us today and taking the time you did to talk to us. And I wish you well in the rest of your life. And I hope you have a very successful uh, career and successful uh, rest of your life. Uh, Harvey Proctor, thank you very much indeed. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085 100 The Niall Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.